You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Treating chronic pelvic pain, a challenge for even experienced clinicians. With me today is Dr. Frank Tu from the Division of Gynecological Pain and Minimally Invasive Surgery of Evanston Northwestern Healthcare System. Diagnosing the cause of chronic pelvic pain is difficult. Managing chronic pelvic pain sometimes seems impossible. It is one of the most frustrating problems to the general gynecologist since the etiology is often elusive, non-gynecologic, or multifactorial. Today, we are joined by Dr. Tu to talk about his approach to treating the patient with chronic pelvic pain. Welcome, Dr. Tu. Hi, Dr. Stryker. Well, you know, it's frustrating for both a patient and a physician to do an extensive evaluation that ultimately does not even identify a specific source for the pain. So if you do a physical exam, ultrasound is normal, laparoscopy is normal, where do you go next in terms of just trying to deal with the pain? And I'd like to start with medical management first before we move on to some of the other options. And specifically, does hormonal suppression ever work if the etiology of the pain is not endometriosis or adenomyosis? You know, I think it depends on the symptoms that the patient's presenting with. But there's no doubt many patients do very well on continuous birth control pills if they're having cyclical pain. Mm-hmm. And that reason is likely due to the fact that many women really do have a prominent hormonal component to their underlying pain sensitivity. And they've done some really nice studies in, in healthy female volunteers indicating that many women will have a worsening of diarrhea, worsening of constipation, chronic bladder problems right around the time when their period starts. And those are women who actually day-to-day don't feel like they have any problems at all. Mm-hmm. So sometimes providing that hormonal suppression is just enough to avoid whatever the trigger is. And how long do you give it before you say this isn't working? I would say I think a three-month window allows the patient some reassurance that you're not simply just trying to paper over this problem and you're really trying to look at the next step beyond simply just using birth control pills. Right. What about neuropathic pain? What drugs do you recommend? How successful is it? We should all recognize that there have been recent advances suggesting that these are excellent drugs and fairly easy for a general gynecologist to learn how to use. A trial out of Austria just in the last couple of years has shown that maybe up to three out of four women with unexplained chronic pelvic pain will respond to these neurological drugs that are widely used in chronic pain. The two that I think are very easy for people to learn how to use are either a traditional anti-seizure drug like gabapentin or an older antidepressant like uh, amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Both of them need a little bit of a taper. You don't want to make your patients too sleepy, which can be one of the side effects. But a nice slow taper over a few weeks is oftentimes very well tolerated. And fortunately, there's very little systemic side effects other than some dizziness and some sleepiness from these Mm -hmm. drugs. Why do you think these drugs work? They're Pharmacology is quite complex, but when you talk to the pain experts, there seems to be a role for adjusting how long neurotransmitters circulate in the central nervous system when you put these drugs on board. And that probably results in actually an increase in the brain's ability to block pain, which is actually a normal defense mechanism that's built into the human body. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're optimistic in saying that most general gynecologists are going to be comfortable using these kinds of drugs, but I agree that it's something we should all be more familiar with. How about opioids? Do you think there's really any appropriate circumstance to prescribe long-term opioids? It's such a complicated issue, Lauren. I think that even the gurus who do addiction medicine for a living struggle with this. I think there are two perspectives. 
One is, is that there are many patients who, after the fact, you recognize that they are living very productive lives that are very much contingent on them being able to use long-acting opioids. Um, they are able to work and play just like the rest of us who are fortunate not to have chronic pain. But just as importantly, there are many studies that show that across the board, these medications don't appear to really increase the quality of life in users who have been using them for many years. I think the challenge is really trying to find who the right patient is, and that's where I think having a long-standing relationship with a patient is probably the most important thing. And if you have someone who seems to be functioning very successfully with opioids, do you ever make any attempt to take it away, to take it off? I think that they need to be warned about a couple of things, and those would be reasons to take them off. One is, is that some patients will develop tolerance where the drug simply doesn't work as well as it used to. And that can be very frustrating, but there are different options for long-term opioids that can be rotated in and is a strategy many people will use. Mm-hmm. But just importantly for young patients, there is increasing evidence that chronic use of opioids may affect the normal hormonal balance. And that, of course, is going to result in things that we as gynecologists are very worried about, impairing fertility or possibly leading to long-term suppression of estrogen production, which can lead to infertility or loss of bone mass. And in in younger women, that's a particular concern. Are there other medications that you find useful? Certainly the use of a neurological drug can be very important. There are more novel approaches nowadays for uh, delivering hormones to women that are sensitive. I'm a big fan of the progestin-containing intrauterine device that I think we all are really quite pleased with. That can be really helpful for people with significant uterine pain. And it's very underutilized in this country, of course. Which is a real shame because uh, I think that the experts in the field feel very comfortable that it's not our grandmother's IUD at all. Not at all. But certainly the use of uh, local anesthetics, uh, either as uh, temporary nerve blocks or in the form of patches that can be applied to sensitive areas on the skin, Mm -hmm. I think are areas that are very easy to use and have minimal side effects, fortunately. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking with Dr. Frank Tu about treatment options for the patient with chronic pelvic pain. Let's move on to surgical management of chronic pelvic pain. The most common surgical approach after laparoscopy is, of course, hysterectomy. But before performing the ultimate treatment, if you will, are there any good clinical tests to determine if someone's actually going to benefit from the hysterectomy? For example, if someone gets really good relief of symptoms from a GnRH agonist, is that an indication that a hysterectomy is going to help or it's just an indication that the GnRH is going to help? You know, I think what that really tells us is that this is an estrogen-sensitive pain condition. And we see that with irritable bowel syndrome. We see that occasionally with painful bladder syndrome as well. I kind of go with uh, two rules of thumb. One is in those rare patients who really do well in a GRH agonist to consider using them off-label with ADBAC. And there are a handful of patients I'm aware of who have been on these drugs for up to a decade with close monitoring of bone mass and things like that. But those mm-hmm. are a rare patient. Right. Hopefully, in some of those patients, you can effectively reduce symptoms by using continuous birth control pills. I think the real key for hysterectomy is to see, is the patient's pain symptoms predominantly related to uh, tenderness in the uterus that you can identify on exam, to be honest. Let's just say, for example, you do decide to treat endometriosis by going to hysterectomy. If the ovaries are not removed, do you think there's any hope of complete resolution of pain? That's a really good question. In our younger patients especially, we really want to try to keep those ovaries in as long as possible. There's actually a nice study that just came out in the Obstetrics and Gynecology Journal from Tommaso Falcone's group at Cleveland Clinic that actually suggests that while you leave the ovaries in place, it, it may shorten the duration to recurrence of pain. It doesn't seem to necessarily affect the effectiveness that much, but you're going to probably have to do something to keep those ovaries suppressed. And 
whether that's the use of a birth control pill or whether it's the use of a GNRH agonist, or if you think about Sirdar Bulan's work here at Northwestern University, perhaps emerging use of aromatase inhibitors in selected mm-hmm. patients, those might be options to allow a woman to actually still get some of the benefit of keeping your ovaries but avoid the pain flares. So that's interesting. So you take out the uterus, leave the ovaries, and then put them on continuous hormonal suppression. It's certainly, I think, one possibility. The other possibility is, of course, you know, using neurological drugs, kind of going completely in a different direction and trying to use a different strategy for pain control. But of course, you know, you and I would be most concerned as surgeons about a significant recurrence of scarring in stage four endometriosis. Sure. What about cervical preservation? That's, of course, becoming more common in this country. And many women request cervical preservation with hysterectomy? You know, I think it's reasonable in a selected patient. I think the challenge is is if you have a significant advanced stage endometriosis case, the cervix in place, it does become a more difficult case to perform laparoscopically in the future if a patient ends up having recurrence of pain. But I think for the typical patient who's having small volume endometriosis, just small implants here and there, I don't think it's really unreasonable to let them have that if there's no other reasons that the cervix should be removed at the time of surgery. Do you use deep dyspareunia in the woman with endometriosis as a guideline as to who you may or may not have pain if you leave the cervix there? You don't think that one has anything to do with the other? Not necessarily, but I think sometimes you can tell the cervix itself is, is a significant pain generator. A real gentle exam can help you distinguish if it's the fundus or the top of the uterus is the problem or if it seems to be the entire uterus. And mm-hmm. I think The patients oftentimes will tell you the ones who really have sort of uterine pain throughout are the ones that are requesting they have the cervix taken out as well. Right. You know, of course, we think of hysterectomy as the cure, but in many cases, it's the cause of chronic pelvic pain. And clearly, a minimally invasive approach would result in less adhesion formation than laparotomy. But is there any evidence that robotic techniques have an advantage over laparoscopic approach if you have a surgeon that's equally skilled at both? I think that the robot is one of these emerging technologies that we'll have to continue to watch. But as you say, I think a skilled laparoscopic surgeon is not likely going to have a significant improvement in outcomes when they're using the robot as well. And Mm -hmm. that's important when you consider the fact that the robot does have some increased cost, at least for certain procedures. Thanks to Dr. Tu, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing new approaches to the treatment of chronic pelvic pain call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.